Okay, so, um, yes, I've called this uh, the Nativity, so I'm not really going to talk about the Virgin Birth um, and uh, Miracle of the Virgin Birth and all that, but I'm going to go through uh, the Nativity uh, in general. And, uh, yeah, on Reasonable Faith um, last session, last Sunday, I did a talk on the Nativity and Erica did one on the Star of Bethlehem and I've now clunched those two topics together um, into, a, into a more fulsome talk for home group. So, uh, opening point, uh, on a purely historical, sort of setting aside any theological logical grounds on a purely historical basis you approach any sort of ancient text and you've basically got two ways of approaching why you should trust what it tells you um, either you've got some general reasons for trusting the source or you've got some particular reasons for trusting what the source tells you uh, and those uh, particular reasons just fall under various standard historical criteria like um, is it reported by independent witnesses you know, the more independent witnesses you have, the better. Um, do those sources make unfalsified claims to public knowledge about what they're talking about? Um, rather than saying, well, nobody else knew about it because it happened in a corner and nobody saw it. Um, well, maybe it did. But if they say, and, and this happened in and everybody knew, knew about it, particularly if they're writing close to the time and place where they say it happened, that's a pretty good sign in its favour. Um, is it embarrassing to those who tell the story because people don't tend to tell stories against themselves if they can help it it's called the criteria of embarrassment um, are there things in the story that you can ver say verify by archaeology um, uh, can you fit together what the source tells you with other sources of information um, if not them saying the same thing at least fitting together coherently uh, in other sources yeah. Yes, you think, hang on a minute. Uh, yeah, but if uh, that's right, so it's got to at least fit with other sources that you can you can get. So on our first point, this is a lovely photo of Professor Keith Ward here. He he notes that Matthew, because the nativity story is only told in Matthew and Luke from different vantage points, Matthew seems to have derived his accounts from Joseph ultimately and Luke from Mary. Uh, that's quite a good working hypothesis, because Matthew, uh, he says, tells us about an angel appearing to Joseph, the wise men visiting the house in Bethlehem, and the flight to Egypt. Luke doesn't mention any of those things. Uh, Luke speaks of the angelic visitation to Mary, um, the birth of John the Baptist to Elizabeth, uh, the visit of the shepherds, and the presentation at the temple. What this suggests is that there were two independent sources of the virgin birth stories, and that increases the probability that they were founded on historical recollections. They haven't got together and said, OK, what's our story? Let's get it straight, kind of thing. Um, they're just telling it from their point of view, and you have to try and fit them together, but clearly they're telling the same story from different points of view and they're independent sources. So, Presumably when Will says that he means indirectly from Joseph, because our best supposition to Joseph was actually dead by the time the Gospels were compiled. Uh, yes, well, yes. An indirect friend of... Whereas Mary was still alive, okay. um, but 
um, yeah, maybe uh, Joseph's Luther. side of the family, or yeah, that's right. So you've got um, brothers and sisters of Jesus yeah. still alive. Um, okay. Yeah. So, uh, whereas Luke talks about Mary stored up all these things in her heart, and there's a sort of indication that she should have, he'd gone sort of almost like direct to her, and this was sort of unusual for her to sort of have told this story, um, almost, isn't there? There's a little indication in Luke. So, uh, Matthew the tax collector um, probably stands behind Matthew's Gospel, which was completed probably by about AD 60. Um, same, probably AD 60 for Luke, who knew Paul the Apostle. And here's a little, um, just an illustration. This is a, a Roman Christian sarcophagus from the 4th century that shows Jesus in the manger um, with the uh, animals that are not mentioned in the Gospels. That The Pope has just written a, a book saying... There weren't any animals. It's not mentioned in the Bible. Why do our why do our nativity plays have animals in and so on? They're not mentioned. Um, Wasn't it a stable? Was it Jake's hobby of donkey there? <laughs> no, that, it's not, no donkey mentioned in the Bible. As we'll see later, it is it is. It's like a before, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's entirely plausible that there were animals there, as we'll see later, but they're not oh, mentioned. Translation is stable, and stable does imply horses, animals, animals, as opposed to barn or outbuilding yeah. or shed or. Yeah, although it does, it, it doesn't actually mention stable. What does it mention? What does it say? Well, we'll get that. Yeah, mentions manger. Um, there must be animals if there was a manger. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Paul Barnett, who's a classical, classically trained historian, uh, points out um, some comparisons of concept between Luke's story of the Nativity and Paul's letter of Galatians 4. In, Galatians 4.4. Galatians 4.4, we know, was written in about AD 49, Mm. earlier than Luke's gospel. But who did Paul know? Luke. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to ask this, Peter. How do you know it's written in AD 49? Uh, I can't tell you off the top of my head how we know it was written in AD 49. but. It'll be because it mentions things that you can date from other sources. Um, And also you can generally line um, the letters and the travels that he's making as he goes around on his missionary journeys with other sources and so on. But I don't know the specifics. But anyway, it's it's interesting that in the light of these similarities of concept, it doesn't use the same words... Um, but he talks about the time had fully come to redeem. And Luke talks about visited and redeemed his people. God sent forth his son. He will be called the son of the most high. Born of a woman. Jesus being the son as was supposed of Joseph. I mean, of woman born under the law according to the custom of the law uh, in Luke. So Paul Barnett reckons there's an indication here um, that um, Paul got his information from Luke. He wrote Luke's gospel on that an interesting thing. 
Um, Ignatius, who's like second generation Christian, um, got martyred for his faith, uh, according to Eusebius, in 108 AD. So only just into the second century, not all that far removed as a source. Uh, <laughs> very acrobatic pictures of, of lions, yeah, devouring him in the in Rome. In his letter to the Ephesians, uh, written on his way to be devoured by lions, um, Ignatius uh, talks about, for our God Jesus the Christ was conceived by Mary in God's plan, being sprung both from the seed of David and from the Holy Spirit, Mary's virginity and her giving birth, and so on. So that's not too far removed to be counted as a, a useful source. Um, and of course, uh, Ignatius wasn't primarily getting his information from Gospels, but rather from disciples of Jesus that he had personally known. Um, then I mentioned this thing about unfalsified claims of, of public knowledge. There's quite a lot in the stories that are, cl- are claimed as public knowledge. So you have um, Zachariah's loss and regaining of speech, um, witnessed by people at the temple, Elizabeth, Mary, neighbours, relatives. And it says, throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about <laughs> these things. Um, Elizabeth's pregnancy, um, multiple people there, Elizabeth, Mary, neighbours, relatives, that's included under throughout the hill country um, because she was very old. Uh, even the angels and Jesus in the manger witnessed by shepherds. What is very old in that day and age? Not as old as it is now, certainly. Um, yeah, but uh, um, I think the indication is pa- past the age of when they thought it was reasonable to expect her to get pregnant. Um, yeah. Because we're talking averages about ages and so on there. The shepherds, of course. Mary would be about 16. Yeah, Mary, well, even earlier than that, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, different culture. You became a man at 13, of course, in, in Jewish culture. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, the shepherds would have been witnesses of embarrassingly low social status, to mention. And the coming of Magi uh, was witnessed by Herod's court and all of Jerusalem, as well as Mary and Joseph and everyone there and so on. And although we tend to think of, you know, we three kings of Orient are, we three Magi and so on, and that's because of the, the three different types of present given. Again, the story doesn't say how many Magi, and it, it's probably an, an entire retinue of group of Magi and support staff <laughs> as it were yeah not just three geezers turning up on, on a couple of camels that's right <laughs> saying we've got some presents you know where should we deliver them um it's it's a big kind of uh thing more about the principle of embarrassment nt wright tom wright uh, mentions that there's no pre-christian jewish tradition suggesting that the messiah would be born of a virgin no one you you know you've got isaiah 17 uh, 714, which talks about that, but no one used it that way before Matthew did. It was considered a Jew, well, it is considered a Jew prophecy. Now, yeah, it's a single prophecy. That's now. right. It's, um, uh, Say that again. Where are that? The Virgin shall conceive of some, he shall, uh, um, it, it's an Old Testament passage which relates to one of the sons of which king he has. One of the Old Testament yeah. kings, I can't remember which, uh, which is fulfilling an immediate prophecy then in relation to God's judgment at the time in terms of the Israelites going to captivity. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it was interpreted as a messianic prediction mm. by the early Christian church subsequently. Um, there's, there's several bits in the Old Testament like that where we, we in light of what happened for the revelation of Christ, we see it in a new light. light yeah. Yeah. And we have, you know, the basis for that comes from the scripture itself where in the Gospels, for example, they reinterpret yeah. scriptures which you might look yeah. at and think, oh, that's just an Old Testament um, in relation to Christ. So we're not pulling that out of thin air. It's something that the early church did under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Um, so even if you were being very sceptical about the stories and you, you just assumed that Matthew or Luke regularly just invented material in their stories to fit Jesus into earlier templates that their readers would have expected, why would they have invented something like the virgin birth on, on that foundation? It says the only conceivable parallels are pagan ones. Um, and these fiercely Jewish stories would certainly not have been modelled on those, those pagan models. Um, Luke, at least, writing for a Gentile audience in particular, must have known that telling this story of the virgin birth ran the risk of making Jesus out to be a pagan demigod. Mm. We have someone like Zeus comes down, adopts a, a, a body, yeah. Yeah, swan or a shower of coins or something, and um, has it off with some earth woman to produce a demigod who's half divine and half human yeah. and of course that's not the Christian concept and Luke telling this story you know, that obviously runs the risk yeah. uh, why for the sake of an, just saying oh well, it's just a metaphor, he didn't really mean it uh, would they take this risk unless they at least believe those stories were literally true uh, to be controversial mm. could that have been well, yeah, I think what he's arguing is that would, far from aiding their understanding, it would hinder their understanding, okay. uh, because the doctrine of the incarnation would would be contradicted by viewing yeah. Jesus's origin in the pagan manner, because they would have then thought of it as something where God became, you know, adopted a body in order to copulate with a human female to then produce a semi-divine semi-human being yeah when she wouldn't be (laughs) exactly whereas what we're saying is no she didn't have sex with anyone by the power of the holy spirit god incarnated himself in someone who was fully human and fully divine (laughs) yeah the doctrine of understanding the nature of christ in terms of his humanity and his days yeah is something that causes a lot of big theological debates right back in the church. Even you see it coming through the letters of Paul. This is these are big issues. We've yeah. been given very careful thoughts. So uh, I won't be able to pronounce this commentator's name, uh, Rob Vandevey, uh, I think. But he says, as a devout Jew, Matthew's decision to record that Joseph, representing the royal bloodline of Jesus, was not Jesus's natural father, only his legal father could open up a potential flood of compromising criticism that Jesus was born out of wedlock. Um, this account in Matthew's Gospel shows his, his unconditional commitment to writing the truth without altering any of it. So he sees it as a sign in his favour. And actually this whole sort of born out of wedlock scandal, you can see signs tracing right back into the Gospels itself. So there's a mid-4th century Acts of Pilate, so, so-called, that has the Jews charging Jesus, you were born of fornication. Um, in 178 AD, there was a pagan writer called Celsus uh, wrote a lengthy uh, polemic against Christianity in which he portrays Christ, uh, J- Jesus as the illegitimate son of a Roman soldier. Uh, in John's Gospel, uh, John eight forty one, you get this accusation from the religious establishment 
in discussion with Jesus, we were not born illegitimate. The only father we have is God. And so the, the intimation there is that the religious authorities knew that there was something apparently illegitimate about Jesus's birth, which is uh, interesting. So people have made just, uh, as you raised this whole thing of, well, maybe it was patterned after pagan stories. Um, it used to be quite a popular theory. Um, as John Redford says, at one time, a very popular idea was that the Christian idea of the virgin birth arose because of pagan religions had this notion of gods mating with humans. Um, but all attempts to demonstrate a, a dependence of such legends uh, by the early Christian community have failed to produce any concrete evidence for it. Um, the parallels, as we've seen, aren't really that strong, and there's actually no evidence of a, of a dependency, and it was, would be unlikely that the Jewish writers in particular would um, would do that sort of synchronistic move and, and it would have really mucked up their communication of what the early church was trying to communicate. So rather than being an idea borrowed from other traditions, a birth from a virgin woman by the power alone of God's spirit is actually unique to the Christian sources, points out John Redford. So those are a bit of a sort of preamble, and now I can sort of go go through the the story, uh, or and pick up some some highlights and look at signs of of historicity or at least consistency with what we know. I always take an opportunity to have a pop at Richard Dawkins. So Dawkins talks a little bit about the nativity stories in the God Delusion, but the historian John Dixon notes that he makes quite a blunder in doing so. Says so in the God Delusion. Uh, delusion Dawkins puts the story of the Magi worshipping the infant Jesus in the wrong gospel. It seems to be more than a typographical error because Dawkins' argument at this point is that Matthew invented stories that would appeal to Jews, um, descent from King David, birth in Bethlehem and so on. Whereas, quote, Luke's desire was to adapt Christianity for the Gentiles and hence to press the familiar hot buttons of pagan Hellenistic religions, virgin birth, worship by kings, <laughs> etc. But of course, the, the kings, the Magi story, is found in Matthew chapter 2, not at all in Luke's gospel. <laughs> so Dawkins gets it completely base over apex. Um, should have read his Bible a little bit more carefully before criticising it. Um, so what about these Magi? Fantastic picture here. Traditional picture of the Magi. Um, Roger Highfield points out that from the 4th century BC, Babylon uh, was the centre of astronomy in the known world. And back then, there wasn't really any difference between astronomy and astrology. They were kind of the same thing. Uh, Magi were important members of the Babylonian royal court <coughs> in Mesopotamia. Moreover, Babylon had contained a thriving Jewish colony since the time of the exile in the 13th century BC. Uh, so that the the Jewish prophecies... Is that the right dating? 13th century that, BC. that sounds wrong to me. It's uh, 7th century BC, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. I think that might be a typo on my part. Uh, or, um, exile is the um, 6th century BC. 6th century BC. BC. Yeah. 7th century BC. So, so ignore that date. Um, <laughs> But anyway, there was the Babylonian exile of the Jewish people, of course. So that Jewish prophecies about a saviour king, um, such as today, 
say Numbers 24:17 could have been read in that way at least. Um, although most people think it's actually about David, uh, may have been well known to Magi. And in the Hellenistic age, um, some of the Magi left Babylon for neighboring, neighboring countries, and by the time of the birth of Christ, they lived mainly in Persia and Mesopotamia and Arabia. Um, they'd kind of spread around the place. Yes. Yeah, I'm coming on to it next. Magi. I will. Uh, Magi are described in the writings of people like Herodotus and the Jewish philosopher Philo, uh, who died in 50 AD. And and Philo describes them this way. He says, The order of the Magi, who silently make research into the facts of nature to gain knowledge of the truth and through visions clearer than truth, give and receive the revelations of of divine excellency. So the distinction between what was science and what was magic, and we actually see it in the Bible, um, in the um, courts of several kings, you see yeah. something along this line in Pharaoh's court with the wise men and the magicians, mm. and you see something similar in Daniel and Babylon with the wise men and magicians. That you know, kings would seek wisdom, the wise amongst men, and whatever wisdom they could get their hands on. The distinction between the science of it and the religion or the magic yeah. was obviously not quite so clear-cut. Um, these were just people who, through one means or another, identified themselves as having access to some form of special knowledge. So they weren't culture. a tribe, they weren't a royal family, they weren't... They're a p- profession, as They're it were. Um, or a, maybe you could say a, a cult. Or Mistranslations, I, I would... Um, partly that, partly yes. the fact that the, the occupation of being a Magi, much like in the Renaissance um, Europe, was reserved to those who were wealthy. Generally, mm. if you're going to do this, you had to have a lot of time on your hands. So, you know, Solomon is famed for his wealth among the kings, and his parables and fellows consistently indicate that wisdom is associated with the kings, those in authority. Partly because if you were rich, then clearly you were a smart fellow, in the thinking of you know, A lot of that prosperity yeah. mentality went with it. And partly yeah. because, obviously, just as in Renaissance Europe, you had to have a little bit of disposable time to be able to do this kind of thing. Your average Joe was out there doing shepherding. So to associate Magi with wealthy and affluent people is a perfect reason for the culture. So it's not beyond the wit to imagine that they might have known of prophecies like Numbers twenty four seventeen. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Battle of Bower um, which is where it becomes a little bit more Davidic rather than Messiah. Yeah, yeah. All the prophecies of, uh, of Daniel. It's probably a dual I think it is probably I've got a little bit uh, more here. This is um, this chap here, Zoroaster. <coughs> right? You know about Zoroastrianism, the, the dualistic religion that comes from that region. Um, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this correctly. So when we have the next census, we all to put down that we are Zo- Zoroastrian. Zoroastrian. Zoroastrian, yeah. <laughs> Better than Jedi, definitely. The, the cult of the Magusians, might not be protecting that, no, Magi and Magusians, was probably a combination of heretical Zoroastrianism and Babylonian astrology. Um, Cyrus the Great conquered Babylon in 6th century BC, says the Magi came into contact with teachings of the city's astrologers, known as the, the Chaldeans, uh, the Chaldeans, etc. Uh, astrology was birthed around that time there, and um, that might have been partly due to the influence of this Zoroastrian religion, 
um, which had a doctrine that human souls originated in the stars. Hence the connection between humans and the stars and looking at the stars to find out things about humans, kind of thing. Yeah, we are. So, yeah, this one gets it right. Yeah, 600 BC, um, the Jewish history in, in the exile, where you know, Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel and all of that that we, we read, um, in the book of Daniel, Daniel is made chief of the wise men of Babylon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, astrology wasn't a component of mainstream Zoroastrianism, and those who incorporated its concepts into their version of the faith seem to have been regarded as heretical. So the Magi are a sort of heretical offshoot of Zoroastrianism that combines it with astrology in Babylon, mm-hmm. and there's this mixing of the Jews. Uh, and, the, and anyone who fits the mix adds something to the kitties, kind of, you know, <laughs> And it's interesting to note that some Zoroastrian writings appear to be messianic in nature. They predict that a son of Zoroastra will be born many years after his own death to a virgin who bathed in a lake in which his uh, semen was preserved, of course. Uh, The son of Zoroastra would raise the dead and crush the forces of evil. So they picked up from Yeah, so these Magi could have been. diaspora Jewish um, related or have this concept of, of messianic from Zoroastrianism or those two might have cross-fertilised anyway um, and they might have known about things like Daniel's prophecy of when the Messiah would come yeah. and so on and, and that prophecy about a star misinterpreting and so on therefore might have been in anticipation looking at their astrology to see whether this was going to happen it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, yeah, you read those. I was reading them in church Sunday. They were, yeah, they're really radical. The, the image of the Son of Man, and he uses Enos as his word for me. This is this is a total radical departure from everything that was kind of embodied. Yes, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's an incredible mm. vision. You read Daniel, and you just think, mm. wow. Daniel 7, particularly. Phenomenal, yeah. yeah. So the star, the word in the Greek, aster, um, just means heavenly body. So it could be a planet or a star, or a comet, or whatever, just a thing in the sky, basically, Aster. Um, the star of Bethlehem must be, of course, compatible with the date the nativity, a singular, spectacular and rare event, uh, perhaps after a series of events, as we'll see. It must have a, a special meaning for Magi, in terms of their thinking about things. It had to occur in the east, we saw his star in the east, and it had to endure for a period of time. They lost it for a while and they saw it again as it was ahead of them when they went to Bethlehem. Now, this is meant to be King Herod over here. Boo! We can all go boo! Like pantomime. King Herod. The angry man. man. <laughs> is there any extra biblical account of the source of the insults? Given that's a fairly, I don't think no. it is. No, no. I'll men- I will mention. Uh, so this is Daniel Wallace uh, notes that the Gospels tell us that Jesus's birth was shortly before Herod the Great died, and Josephus, the Jewish writer, records an eclipse of the moon just before Herod passed on. Uh, 
This, it is reckoned, occurred uh, in March of 4 BC. Josephus also tells us that Herod expired just before the Passover, and that feast took place on April 11th in 4 BC. From other details supplied by Josephus, we can probably pinpoint Herod the Great's demise as occurring between March the 29th and April the 4th in 4 BC. Matthew tells us that Herod killed uh, Bethlehem's babies two years old and under, or those who had reached two and under, so maybe all, you know, there's a little bit of ambiguity in the word there, but a certain uh, range of age there, certainly. (laughs) So the earliest Jesus could have been born is March of 6 BC. With the two years, if you even you take the two years as as two years, why did he kill babies two years and younger in order to get Jesus? When you hear to think he, if you take it as two, he, maybe Jesus could have been two at that time. Yeah. So you go the back. So the earliest back that Jesus. So, so between. Right. Yeah. Backwards. backwards. That's right. Numbers go the wrong way. That's right. Yeah. Six and four. This yeah. is two year period that we can pin down. Partly it's a bit confusing as well because we've got the change from the Roman Julian to the Gregorian calendar involved here and Dionysius the monk uh, who worked out the new calendar um, omitted year zero. He went from minus (laughs) 1 BC to 1 AD and omitted year zero and he also missed a period of time when Caesar Augustus was reigning as Octavian for 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 four years, um, and he missed that, so he got his calculations wrong in working out the date anyway. Um, but anyway, King Herod's death in between March twenty ninth, April the fourth, four BC, killing of children one years and younger or two years and young under. Um, we know about an eight BC census, but that was for Roman citizens only. That's too too early. Shepherds. This is a good clue. Shepherds. In the Palestinian winter? I think not. Uh, Bethlehem is 2,550 feet above sea level, particularly in winter. It's going to be blooming cold. You're not going to have your sheep out on the hillside at that time of year. Um, the sheep were kept in shelter, shelter until lambing in March, April time. So we can probably say Jesus was born during or shortly after the lambing season, March, April, in either 6 or 5 BC. And then we can ask, okay, but what's the star? Looking at the Magi as astrologers, what the star is, the timing, and what scripture can tell us. And I'm going to take quite a lot of this from um, Mark Kidge's book, uh, The Star of Bethlehem, An Astronomer's View, and Michael Mol- Molner's book, The Star of Bethlehem, Legacy of the Magi. Two uh, astronomers who've written fairly recent books on the topic. So we've done a set of Christmas, isn't it? Just sticking on the bookshelf. Yeah. Too silly for the smiling. And both re- reckon you're looking at perhaps a, a series of astronomical events in uh, Pisces, which may have been a symbol of, of Judea or Israel or the Jews uh, and other um, astronomical events. Did they know it as Pisces? I'm just trying to pin them down. When did we get our zodiacal constellations? I think that was. Yeah. What's that? 
there's debate. <laughs> well, we know, from, for example, Job, that those constellations by different names are referred to in yeah. the Old Testament. So yeah. They, they go into the... Yeah, too much to go into. Um, there was this whole series of interesting astronomical events between 7 and 5 BC. It had a triple conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in Pisces, a planetary massing with Mars... They get they get close to each other, yeah, and go apart and get close to each other and go apart and get close to each other and go go apart would be triple. Oh, triple. Okay. So that happens getting close and going apart in in that area of the sky, um, three times. Um, so in the area of Pisces, okay. Yeah, planetary massing with Mars in Pisces, then two pairings in Pisces, occultations. That's when it gets close to the moon uh, of Jupiter, and perhaps uh, a nova uh, or comet maybe observed by the Chinese and possibly the Koreans as well. Um, so the conjunctions where they, they're getting close together here in, in Pisces on these, these dates. Jupiter in astrological terms was understood to be a royal planet, royal and benevolent planet. A triple conjunction involving Jupiter in the constellation of Pisces might well have indicated some sort of royal event in Judea was imminent. Um, Saturn was regarded as a malign planet possible interpretation may be that a great ruler would arise challenging an evil one. A sort of indication that something might be happening there astrologically. That's in 7 BC. Then you get the massing of planets of Jupiter, Saturn and Mars. Uh, Mars, planet of war, of course. Might have further signified the rise of a ruler to overcome, say, maybe the evil Roman Empire. It's going to be conquered or something. Um, that might well have reminded them of the oracle of, of Balaam. Well, it's a good story, hasn't it? Yeah. Uh, pairings in Pisces in February of 5 BC, the moon close to Jupiter and Mars close to Saturn. Isn't it phenomenal that we can run, run the calculations back? Um, and then occultations in Aries which Molnar uh, particularly thinks that Aries represented Judea. Um, so he thinks that, that Jupiter was the star of Bethlehem. And he is an expert in ancient coins as well. He's found some of these ancient coins um, from like AD 13 and 55 and things, where there's this bright star uh, close to a crescent moon occultation with a ram, Aries, on them. Um, which are quite interesting. And uh, he reckoned with the, the movements of, of Jupiter across and back in the sky during that period uh, match up. Uh, relatively, um, I think Molly says this would have been a once-in-a-lifetime event, uh, but perhaps given particular significance having come after the other significant events. It's not just that there's one particular astrological thing that happens, but you've got a series of astrological things, one after another, in fairly quick succession over a couple of years, um, that really builds up the the expectation that, well, something's happening. What What is it that's happening? Or, or these are, what it all means in the, in the terms of the symbology of the time. Individually, I think uh, conjunctions can happen every few years, but triple conjunctions in particular, I don't yeah. know, like, it's just randomly because the orbits are around mm. eccentric, they're like elliptical, but um, occultations are quite rare, actually. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not a hu
then happens in 5 BC. There's a Chinese record. The Chinese made fairly meticulous records of, um, particularly because they they thought eclipses were dragons eating the the sun, and you had to be able to predict them so you could get everybody together to do their fireworks and make lots of noise so you could scare the dragon away. But the first two royal astronomers who, who failed to predict uh, such an eclipse were beheaded, I believe. Um, so they, they, want right. quick, they want to get it right. Uh, the Earth was fortunate at that time, but you know you don't want to run the risk. You know. Um, <laughs> so there's this record in Chinese records uh, in the second year, the period of Qianping, in the second month, Hu Xin appeared in Shenyu for more than 70 days. Um, uh, that would be around March 10th to April the 7th, 5 BC. Hu Xin is a broom star or comet-like, um, might have been misidentified, hang, hung around for at least 70 days. Um, there's a, a similar report in Korean records, and one theory is that the, they're the same thing, and this was actually a, a Nova uh, event. That's an explosion of an old star that actually was taken as being a new star <laughs> until we worked out what it was, but it's, uh, it represents new birth. You get this new, bright object in the sky, or relatively <coughs> bright. Um, Christian astronomer Hugh Ross suggested it might have been a, a, a nova, recurring nova that had multiple explosions. Well, I don't know how a typical nova It depends on the size of the star, doesn't it? Yeah. So, thinking about the position of this nova in 5 BC when the Magi sort of set out and, and came back, it, it would have been in the east when it appeared in March, April of 5 BC. And it says, we saw a star at its rising in the east. Two months later, which is about maybe how long it would have taken to get to uh, Jerusalem, because of the movement of the stars, uh, it would have been almost exactly south of Jerusalem at dawn when you set out to go to Bethlehem and rejoice at seeing the star straight ahead of you, stopping stationary in the sky over the place where he was. Um, and it also fits with the data about the shepherds visiting, probably in March, April, because of the time of year they were out. 5 BC rather than 6. But at first glance, it doesn't fit quite as well with Herod's slaughter of the children as Molnar's Jupiter theory does. Um, but perhaps, he Ross suggests, it was a multiple recurring nova that the Magi did see, but the Chinese didn't. Um, they didn't see everything. Um, they noticed when it first went off, say, in early 7 BC without it triggering their journey, because they hadn't had this build-up of astrological signs, and which they then re-identified as the same guest star in 5 BC that then, right, off we go. Uh, alternatively, Colin Humphrey uh, writes, uh, Herod had asked the Magi the exact time the star had appeared, Matthew 2.7, and it suggested that the Magi recounted not only the appearance of the comet or the nova about one month previously, but also described the significance of the planetary massings in 6 BC, the triple conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in May, October, December, 7 BC. Herod, leaving us into chance, decided to kill all the boys born since the first stage of the triple conjunction in, in, in 7 BC, two years previously. Um, well, I'm not going to take any chances to kill everybody since, since the whole start of this whole affair, kind of thing. Um, so it's difficult to choose between them, and there are other theories available, but it's certainly 
seems possible that that some sort of as, uh, knowable astrological so event. Only just being older than the two. Oh no, he wouldn't. Have. No. Well, we don't know because we don't know exactly when the kings rocked up relative to Jesus being born. Yeah. They didn't Yeah. Yeah. They they were forewarned. Yeah, and the, and the major didn't go back to Herod and, and tell him and, and, and so on. I still don't get quite how star guides you to a specific. Well, it 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 it, it didn't. And it doesn't say in the text that the star did guide them. No, they go to Herod first, don't they? They go, to, they go, they, they see the signs. We saw his, we have seen his star in the east. Yeah. We've gone to Bethlehem to, uh, to, 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 to Jerusalem to say, we saw, th- where is this king yeah. going to be? Where is this Messiah going to be born? We've seen his star in the east. And then the local people say, well, what about this prophecy about Bethlehem? They set out to Bethlehem and, and are rejoiced to see the star going uh, in, in ahead of them yeah. and not moving in the sky relative to, to Bethlehem but yeah. stopping okay, so over it as they set out at dawn yeah from the east to the south if an angel's going to rock up anyway then if you know some celestial being rocks up and gets over there by that point all bets are off on stars yes but it's not like in the nativity play when you've got a sort of spotlight on that then here's you know sort of here's the play that's right you know we get these sort of Sunday school images so Caesar Augustus in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered or the NIV helpfully adds in a word that's not in the original text the entire Roman world very helpfully telling us something that's not in the original Um, Caesar Augustus of course never ordered that all the world or all the Roman world be registered so that's wrong Um, However, what the verse actually says is that the whole, if I pronounce this right, oikonon, the whole land should be registered. Um, Luke uses the same term in Acts 11.28. Um, there would be a great famine over all the oikonon. And here it clearly means the land of Judah, not the whole Roman Empire or the whole world. Um, so that's a mistranslation uh, there from the original. We do know from a couple of sources that near the, the end of his reign, I think this is Josephus, yeah, Josephus Antiquities, Herod fell out of favour with Augustus, who sent him a sharply worded letter telling him that although he'd treated him before as a friend, from that point on he'd treat him as his subject. Herod was demoted from Rex King Socius to Rex Amicus. I'm not sociable with you, I'm just amicable with you now, you see. And that meant that he lost the authority to conduct his own taxing. From Josephus, we also learn that at this time the Romans required an oath of allegiance to Caesar from the citizens of Herod's domain. There's another source of that too. And that would be a step in the reduction of Palestine from a kingdom to the status of a Roman province. I'm downgrading you and your province. This may be the census mentioned by Tertullian um, in the 3rd century. But within a year or so, Josephus reports Herod managed to claw his way back into Augustus's good books. An interesting little spat. So 
in that context, when Luke writes, of course, this was the first registration or census when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And lots of critics have picked up on this because, according to Josephus, who, of course, isn't infallible and might be wrong, <laughs> according to Josephus, Quirinius didn't become governor of Syria until AD 6. AD 6. Ten years after Herod the Great was dead. But Luke knows that Jesus was born during the reign of Herod the Great. And he also seems to know about the taxation in AD 6, mentioned perhaps in Acts 5.37. Some people have pointed out that the Greek word for first, prote, can be translated as prior to or before. So the Greek of Luke 2.2 could be translated, this census was before Quirinius was governor of Syria, which would harmonise our two sources. Or, a little bit more complex, there's an, another way of reading a bit of the text, depending on whether you took it as capitals or not, which you don't, because uh, it's written in capitals, uh, Luke 2.2 2 could read uh, that the taxation itself was first made when Quirinius was governor, blah, blah, blah. Um, the term here could mean it can, is a bit ambiguous because it can mean a, a census registration or a taxation involving a registration. <coughs> so Luke's registration or census might correspond to Josephus's allusion in antiquities to this oath of allegiance to Caesar uh, in Judea near the end of the reign of Herod the Great when he temporarily fell out of uh, good graces. So a possible reading of Luke is that the uh, in 6 BC, uh, AD, sorry, uh, Quirinius picked up where the oath of allegiance had been left and brought a taxation to pass on its basis which is a, another legitimate way of reading the text without being in contradiction with Josephus, who, of course, might be wrong anyway. Um, so there are a number of ways of getting around that. Uh, we start out from Nazareth, of, of course. In 2010, they unearthed their first first-century house from Nazareth. Um, they hadn't got any first-century um, houses uh, before then. Um, interesting quote from the excavation director here. He says, the discovery is very important, uh, reveals for the very first time a house from the Jewish village of Nazareth and thereby sheds light on the way of life at the time of Jesus. And uh, she even says, this may well have been a place that Jesus and his contemporaries were familiar with. Um, so we start out in Nazareth and we go to, of course, Bethlehem. Which again, some critics had said, well, we, we, we've got information that says Bethlehem existed after the time of Jesus. But the only place that it says that it, that it existed you know, at the time is in the Gospels. Maybe it, it didn't and so on. When, when did it come into existence? When was it thriving? Was it likely? Um, an interesting recent find just in May this year... Um, Ali Sukron talking about it here, um, Israeli archaeologist. This is a very large picture of a very small thing. It's a little stamp that you use for trade goods. Uh, and it's got on it the name Bethlehem. Uh, and a Hebrew inscription from the first temple period, uh, 8th, 7th century BC. Um, so that shows that Bethlehem existed prior to the gospel stories. 
Um, and we know they existed after. And okay, maybe the whole place got abandoned in the meantime and stuff back, but they know. Of course, Bethlehem was in Ruth and Boaz's story. In, well, yes, but we're looking for extra biblical okay, um, evidence of its existence. Quick question. I mean, yeah. Tower of David. I don't seem to recall, if I remember correctly from the Old Testament, that David is explicitly mentioned as having any connection to Bethlehem in the Old Testament. I've always wondered where that comes from. Were they close to Bethlehem? Was it their nearest little sort of village? Was well, there... the, the um, ancestry, in the Bible, mm. the ancestry goes back to Boaz, and he came from Bethlehem. And then his child was, Rothery's child was Obed. Obed and Jesse. Then it was Jesse yeah. and David. Yeah. And um, so they came from Bethlehem. So that's the family. Correctly, <coughs> the place that's mentioned in 1 Samuel ooh, 14 or 15 isn't Bethlehem. It's always got a place now, and it's somewhere close by, but I can't remember. I think there's a complication that there are there are two Bethlehems as, as well. Mm. There's the one near Jerusalem and one not. Like, um, Bersheba, I think there's two of those yeah. as well. The Church of the Nativity is interesting. It's one of these you know, churches built on the traditional site of traditional site of the birth. Um, and it's built on top of a cave. And you might think, hmm, that sounds a bit odd. Um, the Gospel accounts don't mention a cave. Um, but less than a century uh, later, uh, Justin Martyr in 160 AD, the Proto-Evangelism of James uh, both say that Jesus was born in a cave. The traditions also attested by Oregon and Eusebius in the 3rd century. And actually, when you look at the architecture of houses in the area... Many are still built in front of caves mm -hmm. to use the cave as a, well, it's like it's already a useful space, isn't it? Just build my house in front of that and I've already got a bigger place. That's a great idea. The cave part would have been used for stabling and storage. That's the manger. But it's not a stable, as we imagined in sort of Western terms. I thought the stable was where they ate out of. The, the, the manger is, the, is like the trough. Yeah. That they ate out of. Yeah. Oh, I see. They're storing it in there. Yeah. Okay. And you might have kept your, you know, bring your animals in at night for safety, stop them getting robbed and things, and a couple of goats or whatever, put them in the cave. Yeah. Through the house, though. Did, did, did we learn something from the Bible there, David? Sorry? Did we learn something from the Bible there? You haven't got most of it. Yeah, you just think. Just talks about Jesse. Jesse. Yeah. Uh, so various other people note that the, the site of the birth was marked as early as, as Hadrian in 120 and so on. So there's quite a good tradition for this site, and it's not at all implausible that the house would have incorporated a cave. Um, and there is this, this sort of early tradition about Jesus being born in a cave, but that doesn't mean he wasn't born in a house. <laughs> when you look at the, the area, quite a nice... Um, here's a manger... Here's an early manger. It does look like that, doesn't it? Yeah. Stone manger. It may not have been that sort of different from a child's bed anyway, so yeah. it may not have been quite such an awful yeah. And typical first century Jewish home uh, would have had daytime living quarters um, where vulnerable or especially valuable animals were stored at night. Uh, 
and upstairs guest room. Underfloor heating. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so particularly Ken Bailey, who, who specialises in the sort of anthropology of the area and so on, argues that the word that we translate as, as in, no room at the inn, that word is cataluma. And again, it has several meanings. And cataluma, he says, should be translated as guest room. There's no room in the upstairs guest room. Um, so he says that Jesus was born at the heart of the Palestinian home. Joseph and Mary arrive in Bethlehem for the census. Joseph finds shelter with relatives or a family there. The family has a separate guest room, but it's full because of the census and or because it's Passover time of year, maybe. Um, the couple's accommodated among the family, uh, but the birth takes place uh, there and in the family home and the baby's laid out in the manger. That's uh, perhaps... They don't, uh, so they use are, the cave. Kind of. So they are... There's no room in the guest rooms upstairs. Yeah. So that's why they're accommodated down With the family and the, the cave and the cave where the animals are with, with the manger. And, yeah, yeah that's entirely... So, actually, may or may not, that's right. When the film is Hezekiah the Musical, we have little donkeys poking their heads out from yeah. inside houses as you walk down the street. Yeah. Hezekiah going, hello. Hello. Actually, yeah. we're, we're biblically sound. Biblically sound, yes. Hezekiah the movie. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> Here's an interesting snippet. While we're shepherds wash their socks, by night, you know, uh, Daniel Wallace mentions that the sheep around Bethlehem were sacrificial lambs for the temple system. In the early spring, they would have been slaughtered at the Passover. And God first reveals the Messiah's birth to these shepherds who look after the sacrificial lambs. Why are they, uh, why, why are they the sacrificial lambs, the one that's around Bethlehem? Because Bethlehem is relatively close to Jerusalem and it's the, it's the good, cheap country. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they looked after the sheep that produced the lambs that were then slaughtered at the temple. That sort of brings an added level of the sort of the, the, the symbolic meaning yeah. of, okay. of, of, of what's going on there uh, as well. It's a bit too nice. Mint sauce. Yeah. Ah, okay, so uh, arrival of the Magi uh, causing a big stir. Roger Mon uh, Ralph Muncaster points out that there were numerous struggles between Rome and Persia, and Palestine was essentially a, a buffer state between the Roman Empire and the Persian Empire. Herod was granted the title King of the Jews three years before he was able to occupy his own capital city. Um, he'd previously been driven out by Persians, and Jews looked down on Herod, who wasn't Jewish stock. So Herod was in a quite sort of vulnerable uh, feeling position, in a sense. Could have been sort of attacked from, from all sides. Um, the rule of Persia was ageing and in health in politically unstable times and so on. And these magi, we know, were given great power in Persia and often played key roles in government affairs, uh, including selecting kings in Persia. They would say, he's going to be king. So circumstances were certainly in place that would have caused uh, greatly troubled the insecure Herod and the people of Jerusalem when this retinue of Magi from Persia, maybe from Persia turn up. Um, 
Here's another, this 4th century Roman sarcophagi. You see the star and the, the Magi there. Three camels. Three <laughs> camels and so on. Mary and Jesus knows that. Early depiction of the arrival of the Magi. <laughs> Daniel Wallace notes that they, they give him gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. These are quite strange gifts when you think about it, particularly the frankincense and myrrh. Um, the gold's fairly understandable, but frankincense and myrrh? Um, perhaps they'd read Isaiah's prophecy that nations will come to your light and kings to your rising. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news. Maybe they if they knew about some of these prophecies, well, that's an appropriate thing to, to give. Um, explains that the frankincense, but not the myrrh. Um, now, myrrh was used to embalm corpses. It was actually used on, on Jesus, according to John 19. If the, if the Magi were thinking of Jesus' death when they bought the myrrh, they might have known this from Daniel's prophecy, Daniel 9, 24, 27. Uh, about the Messiah being cut off and making atonement for in- iniquity and yes. bringing everlasting righteousness and so on there. Herod the Great, of course, plenty of archaeology connected to, to Herod. There's some bronze coins and uh, a bit of pottery that was probably used for storing wine in that actually has Herod the Great, King of the Jews, written on it. The same titles used uh, in the Bible. Slaughter of the innocents, the killing of the children. Um, certainly not out of character from what we learn about Herod from other sources. Uh, Josephus notes that Herod inflicted such outrages upon the Jews as not even a beast could have done if it possessed the power to rule over men. Uh, Josephus tells us that Herod murdered his favourite wife's father, drowned her brother, and killed her. (laughs) He executed one of his most trusted friends, who was his barber, and 300 military leaders. He slew three of his own sons, suspecting them of treason. Before Herod died, knowing that he was about to die, he locked up 3,000 of the nation's leading citizens in an amphitheatre and ordered that at the moment of his death, these 3,000 people in this amphitheatre be killed. Nice. Just to make sure there was mourning when he died. You know? yeah. uh, fortunately, when he died, everybody realised, hang on a minute, we don't have to carry out his command because he can't be angry with us if we don't. So they didn't carry out the command. <laughs> but this was the kind of guy that we're talking about. So, you know, not out of character. And Bethlehem and its rural surroundings... Um, Given a, I mean, I've seen different estimates, but they range between sort of ten to sixty babies uh, in a outlying village and area um, of two years and under, roundabout. Um, Josephus might not have known about that relatively insignificant crime, or he might have known about it and decided not to mention it. Um, not everything gets mentioned by any writer, of course, but it certainly doesn't seem to be out of character. Um, and it's perhaps not as big a thing as is sometimes um, sort of imaginatively portrayed, uh, as it were. And here's uh, the late Ehud Netzer standing uh, with uh, 
part of Herod's sarcophagus and announcing the discovery of uh, Herod's tomb in 2007 uh, after he did pass away in 4 BC allowing Joseph and Mary and Jesus to come back from Egypt and uh, go back to, uh, to Nazareth. And there we go. Little donkey, little donkey on the dusty boat. <laughs> is that because that's not in the Bible at all? No, no little donkey is mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> but I just want to say it wasn't there. But uh, <laughs> yeah. And we don't know we don't know that it was two years. It was uh, that was the sort of maxima. Um, but staying yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah, staying with family and new new newborn kid, and they stay long enough to go to go to the temple to have the give the sacrifice of the pigeons and circumcision and so on, and um, yeah, and then Herod's. If if you take it as two years, and it might be one. If if you take it at two, it might be Herod just being giving a simple instruction that the soldiers can can carry out that's the that sure is going to get him as it were if I remember correctly I'm still free to travel down for a while it's one of those random things as an obstetrician you remember it, very strict And of course, it, it may have been as short as several months yeah. rather than two years. And did someone say it was just coming up to Passover at the so start. So they could have stayed for that week. That first Passover, possible, who knows? Yeah. What was the 
situation of Jews going to observing um, the um, pilgrimage to the temple. Was that an annual thing that everyone did, or was it something you would do at some point? I can't remember the culture. I've got a funny thing, it's something you did at some point. Not necessarily every year. More like the, the uh, Muslim Hajj than. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't know. That's impressive. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. that's a long time. If you've got small errors in your numbers, they go completely do that. Yeah, they kind of say, here's a, basically it comes down to here are a number of plausible possible theories we can't pinpoint it yet but it might possible be possible one day if say they say if it is a nova you might be able to through radio astronomy be able to work out that one you know picture one in the right kind of patch of sky did uh, explode that long ago and so on you might be able to pinpoint it through scientific research or it might not be possible but it might be yeah. um, but still more discussion certainly to be had on the issue, but uh, 